all I can think of is like, yo, if I mess this up, this is all, this is not gonna happen. Because remember, it was still a trial basis at that time too. So like, I just, I, I wanted to kill it, and I knew that I was ready, but it was really, really intense. It was a different, different thing. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Beat Talks podcast. I'm your host, DJ Ruscha, the official DJ for the Los Angeles Lakers and AVP Pro Beach Volleyball Tour. This week, I am joined by NBA champion DJ Four Corners of the Toronto Raptors. We talk about DJing the finals, being BFFs with Drake, music producing, being an artist, touring the world as a DJ. So let's get right into it. Here's my guest, Four corners welcome to the beat talks podcast i appreciate you thank you man appreciate you reaching out these are some strange times we gotta stay connected and this is a better time than ever to be doing stuff like this right yeah it's something uh, i've been wanting to do i had a plan in my head about a year ago and i started this and then as you know things come up and you get busy and blah blah and then we got locked in the house and i was like well what can i do it's like, well, let's let's do that podcast that I was thinking about. So who knows? We'll see what happens. What's it like in uh, Toronto right now for you with this uh, pandemic and stuff going on? Um, I'm pretty much on lockdown. It's it's okay. I mean, looking out my window right now, and I just actually went to the like biweekly mission to the grocery store, which is like an ordeal because we all got to you got to stand in line six feet apart outside. They're only letting fifty people in the grocery at a time. And you kind of do your thing and get out and sanitize everything and and stay inside again for another two weeks. It's crazy. So I've actually never been to Toronto before, one of the few major cities I've never been to. So is it similar? I have the vision of it similar to New York, where it's a very highly densely populated metropolitan area. Is that true? It is highly populated, not as populated as New York. I mean, not very many places on the planet are as populated as New York, but it's a very fair description to say it's a smaller version of New York. Very multicultural. The downtown area is super busy normally. Right now, it's it's eerily not busy. But we're also on the water like New York. Um, we're on Lake Ontario. And I live right down by the lake shore. And it's a little, I mean, people are out. People aren't gathering. The, the, the authorities are making sure that people don't really get together too much. But there's people jogging. Yeah. and doing stuff that they would regularly do just it's just way less crowded than normal especially this time of year it's just starting to get warm like our weather here turns around this time like late march early april starts to get into that really good spring weather mm-hmm. and i know people are itching to get out but, but we're doing what we can to stay safe so i, I can just imagine it's probably eerily quiet that's how i keep describing los angeles it's just quiet yeah, especially when you go to places in the, in the I mean, daytime as well, but like nighttime where they're, they're normally buzzing with people. Like we have, our version of Times Square is called Dundas Square. And it's like the main intersection in the country. There's giant um, LED billboards all over the place. And it's like the big mall is right there. And there's a stage that normally we have performances during the summer. And it's like, it's bustling normally. And it's empty. It's like creepily, creepily, like end of times empty. Like movie shoot, everybody stay out of here because we're shooting a movie type empty. Yeah. But there's no movie. This is such a weird, weird, weird feeling, that's for sure. Um I was looking I was looking at your Instagram page 
and uh, two of your three descriptions on your Instagram page, I know you're a DJ, you're a music producer. What I didn't know is that you're a tiramisu enthusiast. I'm going to need you to explain that oh, a little bit more. I am a connoisseur. Well, act, I mean, I've always loved, I'm not really a sweets guy. I'm more of a, a savory. I like salt more than sugar. But there's something about tiramisu that drives me crazy. So <laughs> I like to eat in restaurants. Not right now, but normally. Yeah. I travel and tour a lot as a DJ. And I've had the fortunate opportunity to go to a lot of nice restaurants. And nice restaurants generally have incredible tiramisu, especially if it's an Italian restaurant, obviously. Um, so it just became a thing. Like, I've always had a hashtag, eat with Kurt, because I'm a food lover. Such a foodie. Like, I cook a bit. My girlfriend cooks a lot. But I love going to restaurants and, like, trying new things. I used to be so, so set in my ways. And then I started touring and it just opened my mind and I love trying new food and wherever I go, I want to have the local food and like I indulge, but the one staple around the world at top notch restaurants, if you have a good tiramisu, we can talk. I can sit down and have a meal straight up. So I've been like, I, I created like a hashtag tiramisu tour and I've been like, I haven't found a sponsorship yet. So anybody that has any kind of links to like a tiramisu the tiramisu industry. You will after this podcast for sure. <laughs> but no, I just really, really love it, man. And like whenever I go somewhere, I make sure that I try it out and I compare. And um, to date, oddly enough, my favorite tiramisu was at a restaurant in Vienna, Austria, an Italian restaurant. I wish I knew the name. I can find out. But the greatest tiramisu I've ever had in my life. But I've had me some tiramisus. Nice. Well, we should all definitely follow you if for nothing else, at least your tiramisu. For sure. <laughs> if you don't like music, if you don't like NBA <laughs> basketball, maybe you'll find some entertainment and some value in my tiramisu reviews. Absolutely. So you, uh, you get to tour the world as a DJ, which is not something a lot of people get to do. How did that come about for you? Um, really, it was, a, it was a very, 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 very calculated choice. Like when I first got into DJing, I got into it from just going to parties locally here in Toronto. Um, I discovered DJ culture late, kind of late as far as most DJs are like, concerned. I was probably like 20, 21 years old. And I, um, I don't know, I just started, I, w I went to university. I started going to, to parties and just realized that DJ is the coolest guy in the room. Every single party you go to, like, you feel like, you know, the energy, and if you, if you, you know, I don't have to explain this to you, but like anybody who's not a DJ, if you go to a club, you go to a party, you go to a big event and there's a DJ, that's where it's at. He's the guy, right? So I fell in love with that and started diving deep into the culture and, and learning as much as I could. At that time, we didn't have like, Google wasn't what it is today. So you couldn't just find DJ videos and stuff like that the way that you can now. DJ culture was kind of a mystery back then actually like most people didn't really care that much about it if you weren't into the scene and all of that but i super was and the djs that i admired the most i'd see them in these crazy like crazy places like i know you know like okay you're from new york or you're from toronto or you're from paris or wherever you're from but like these pictures and videos of them all over the world and i was like yo you can do that that's a thing i like i thought that was just like singers and rappers went on a tour like that i didn't know djs could do that the only DJs I knew that were on tour like that were DJs that were like part of a group or like DJing for a rapper or something of the sort. But when I discovered the fact that DJs could actually do that, 
I just finessed it, man. I just figured out how to get places. The first time I ever went anywhere on a plane to DJ was Edmonton, Canada and Vancouver, Canada. I did like a weekend. And that was from just, I don't know, harassing promoters <laughs> until they find <laughs> <laughs> Harassing promoters, like just like if I went online, I found out who the hottest promoters in those cities were. I uh, figured out that maybe we had, I figured out we had some mutual friends. I, I used that. I used the fact that I just started as the Raptors DJ and just finessed it and like, yo, just, I know you've never heard me DJ before, but like this, here's the mixtape that's online and like, whatever, like, what do I need to do? And they gave me a shot. And then from there I met more people. And the first time I went anywhere far was Poland. Oddly enough, the first time I really wanted to go to Europe. I always wanted to go to Europe. And I, through my connections in Edmonton, there was a DJ there that was Polish that linked it up that we could go DJ together in Poland. So we did a tour of Poland, like four or five cities driving. And after that, I was like, that's it for me. Like, it's too, I've seen too much. I want to go everywhere. So yeah. I just focused all my efforts on figuring out how to go DJ in different cities and countries around the world. And like a lot of it, and this is what, like, I've explained this to so many of my DJ friends and like just people that ask me all the time. It's like, yo, you got to be willing to, you could be the man in your city. Like you could be running things in your city. If you're trying to go somewhere where they've never heard of you, you got to give them a reason to bring you. And the best possible reason in the beginning is it's not going to cost them a lot. So if it's not, it's no skin on their, off their back, they might give you a shot, right? So I've done enough gigs like that where I've really, really had to be like, look, I'll pay for my own flights. Just pay me a little bit or like cover my flights and don't pay me. Like whatever we got to do, like trust me when I get there, I'll rock it and you'll see what it is that you're doing this for. And hopefully <laughs> next time things will be, you know, a little bit of a better financial situation. And they have been in most cases. So like to get a foot in the door, do what you got to do. And then from there, you do, if you do it right, you shouldn't have to go for free the second time. So that's how I it essentially got it popping in the beginning. And then the more you do, the more things come to you. So like if you do a good job, people hear, people talk. The nightlife industry, I'm sure you, you know, is like very connected. The same people, you know I mean? It's one degree of separation. So if you really kill it somewhere, they tell their, their other associates that also do bookings or other DJs or other club owners or what have you. And word gets around and things grow. So like I played in Poland first. Then I got a, a connection through MySpace to play in Brussels, Belgium. And with my homie, Jay Psar, who we're still friends to this day, still very, very, very close friends. And he connected me with a promoter in Paris to start playing in Paris. And Paris is the epicenter of nightlife, probably in the world, but um, definitely in Europe. I actually found out recently that the first nightclub ever was in Paris. Like the first oh, modern day nightclub. That. Yeah, I, I've, I, I went on a deep dive into Google. Very cool. We'll talk about that. Yeah. But yeah, Paris, every club, every major club around the world, especially on, on, in the Eastern Hemisphere, I found there's always a French guy. There's always a French guy somewhere in management or ownership or something. There's always a French guy. <laughs> they just, they just, they, they do it. They know how to run nightlife. They invented it, technically. It's in their DNA. It is. It is. There's a long history, 50, 60 years deep of nightlife. So there's always somebody. So, like, 
getting a, making a name for myself in Paris, which I didn't even know at the time, really blew things up further than that. Like I started getting calls and messages from other places saying, yo, I heard this. I heard that. Would you be interested in coming out here? And things just snowballed from there. Very cool. And I think the lesson that hopefully people take from that is that when you started, it was from a humble experience. Like, hey, I'm the Raptors DJ, but I've never been in your city before. Give me a shot. I'll do it for less than what my normal rate is or however you wanted to finagle that. And then you grow. So the only way you can grow your name in other places, unless you move there and start yeah. there all over again, right? Like that's right. how you have to do it. Right. I mean, well, think about it this way. Like even as a local DJ, when you start out in your city, you don't start at the top, right? Yep. You got to make a name for yourself. You got to build, a, you have to build like a network of people who even know who the hell you are, first of all. And then you got to prove yourself that you're actually good at your job. And then you got to prove that you can add value to what it is that they're already doing. Because chances are, if there's somewhere you want to DJ, it's already popping, right? For sure. So like it's, there, there are levels to it. On a global scale, it's the same thing. It's just not as easy as going out Friday to Saturday night and meeting some people because, yeah. you know what I mean? I've done that though. Like when I'm on tour, like if I've gone, like I remember the first time I played in the UK, I got a gig through a friend from here. <laughs> it's always through somebody. Of course. A, a promoter here, his younger brother was in school in Manchester and was doing college parties over there. And I was playing in Belgium because that was like my first place that I actually really got a footing. And I was playing in Paris because I still was building there. And I got this opportunity to play in Manchester for not a lot of money. And I had to get there on my own or whatever. But I'm like, hey, I'll work it out at a time that I'm in Europe and I'll pop over. And then I played that gig. And then I was like, well, I've never been to the UK. I got to go to London. You know what I mean? So I go to London and I was like, okay. And I knew one person there. I knew one girl there. So we hung out and she showed me what she knew because she was from Canada. So like she showed me around what she knew. And then we went to a nightclub because I was like, I got to see nightlife. And I connected online with a DJ named DJ Sam Young. Okay. And he was, you know, popping, doing his thing there. And he was playing at a club called China White. So went to go see him there, went to go, went with him got to check out the club and whatever and met some people skip ahead a few years back. I'm a resident at that club now. Do you know what I mean? Just awesome. from like things happen. You got to go places. You got to like be in the room. Like I, that that's, I think that's the bottom line. Be in the room. Well, and people have be to know you too, right? Like, or somebody that knows you has to, it's all word of mouth in the DJ world is how I look at it. Right. Like, you knew somebody in Toronto that knew somebody somewhere else. And then you meet that person, they know somebody else. And it just, it's kind of a domino effect. Right. And, you know, I look at the, when people are like, Oh, you're paying for yourself to go get this gig, but you're a investing in yourself and B I look at it as marketing just cause you know, let's say Coca-Cola has a billboard on the side of the road. That billboard may not pay for itself in the way of, Oh, everybody that sees it goes by as a Coke in the next right. gas station. But you keep seeing that name over and over again. You're like, oh, I recognize that. And then every once in a while, it becomes a household name. And it's like, oh, I need a DJ. What about that guy or girl that I heard about? And then all of a sudden, now you're in Paris. Exactly. Yeah. And beyond that, people don't really think about the fact that all those billboards that Coca-Cola puts up, they pay money for that. They invest. Exactly. Right? Yep. So if you and I want to be somewhere and we want to go and like make that, we make that investment in ourselves, 
we know we're not going to put up a billboard and say, yeah, yeah, I'm available for bookings. You go to the clubs or you go to, you know what I mean, where you can go, even if it costs you money. I mean, don't break the bank. Obviously, it's business. You yeah, gotta, be smart about it. That makes sense. Yeah. But I mean, you weigh your options. You decide what's important to you, what you really want to do. And like you double down when you need to double down. And I, I've never regretted that. I learned that really, really early that it was so beneficial. Like it, the return on investment on that is super high. If you're good, if you're number one, if you know how to talk to people. Yeah. And like, just like rule number one, don't be a jerk. Yep. <laughs> I mean, I think that should go without saying. And then number two, if you're really good at what you do, people will take notice. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? There's a reason why Coca-Cola is like one of the number one beverages in the world. People like how it tastes. Exactly. If it tasted terrible, doesn't matter how many billboards they put up. It's not going to be what it is. Well, the other thing too is that you are totally lost my train of thought because I saw your <laughs> uh, championship ring and it totally threw me off. And I was like, "Dang it! I, I want, I want one, I want one of those so bad." We're totally going to come back to that for sure because, as you should, because <laughs> if I had one, it would be my screensaver. You would never see my face again. It would just be in yeah. every video and every yeah, yeah look at my never phone see my face. Ah, so good. <laughs> Screw it. Let's talk about it now. So you, it. how long were you DJing in Toronto before you got the Raptors gig? Um, I would say, I mean, I've been, it's, I, I call my, the beginning of my DJ career, the year 2000, mm-hmm. even though I, I picked up, I mean, my, my dad always had turntables in the house and I messed around before that. And I started buying records and kind of, you know, trying to make mixtapes and whatever. And I would say, I think, if I can remember correctly, the first mixtape I ever made was in 96. Okay. And it was garbage. It was trash. <laughs> I mean, I even made a little cover in like Microsoft Paint. I like made a little... Awesome. <laughs> and uh, I, five people heard it maybe. I don't know. I just like listened to it over and over myself and gave it to a few friends. And that's what, that was like... Because I, I just learned what mixtapes were and I saw like the top DJs in my city and then found out like I got my first DJ Clue mixtape and stuff like that. And oh, I was yeah. Like, oh, DJ. Riders. Yeah. And I'm like, I'm not DJing anywhere. I've, I'm nowhere nearly good enough to DJ anywhere, actually. But I can put some songs together, I think. And I made these terrible mixtapes. Um, but in, I would say in the year 2000, I actually started getting like opener gigs and like little birthday parties mm-hmm. for people and, you know, a DJ friend, like one of my homies, his older brother was a DJ and he'd let me and him kind of like play for 20 minutes during his set if he had to go to the bathroom or, or whatever type thing and we thought we're the coolest things in the world of so, course this is the greatest day of my life and it'll never <laughs> get better than this this right? 20 minutes is the greatest thing ever you know what i mean like all the girls in here are looking at us right now like in a good way it's sick so that was 2000 i got the raptors gig in 05 okay so i'd be been djing around the city and like retail and stuff like that for five years and then I got the Raptors gig. And did you, did they approach you or was that, did they have a DJ before you or were you their first DJ? No, at the time, DJ Irie was the only NBA. In Miami. DJ. Yep. Yeah. And I'm, if I don't know for sure, we'd have to like really fact check this. I don't even know where to fact check this from. But as far as I know, he's the first DJ to ever be like uh, the official DJ of a professional sports team. Uh, yes. He was the very first one. And I think it was like 97, 98, 99, something that, like that. Uh, I actually, 
I, it's I know him, but through his manager, and I'm going to have him on this podcast, and we we're going to talk oh, about sick. that because I'm very curious how that whole thing came about. But yeah, he was the very first one for the Miami Heat. Yeah, I actually don't know the story. I've never asked him. I know him. He's just, yeah, he's, he's, he's a super, super cool dude. Him. Yep. Yeah, um, I've never actually asked him his X Men his superhero origin origin story. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're we're, we're going to find that out on this pod for sure. Yeah, so I'll be tuned in for that one. Yeah, yeah. That one. Um, the the most, I mean, this is completely aside, but the most interesting thing I've ever heard about him prior to any of this was he was roommates with Sean Paul in college or in high school, something like that. Look at that gem you in just school. dropped. I can't wait to find out more yeah. about that too. He awesome. was roommates with Sean Paul at some point while going to school, whether it was like private school or college, something of the sort. Very but cool. Before, obviously, before Sean Paul was who he is. Yeah, before Sean Paul was well. Sean Paul. Yeah, was Sean. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. So at the time, Irie was the only um, sport NBA DJ for sure. Mm -hmm. Maybe the only sports DJ. And some of the brass from the company that owns the Raptors went to a Heat game, and they saw him there and saw how they integrated him into the game uh, presentation and all that. And obviously, we know now adding a DJ to a basketball game is amazing. It's great. Mm -hmm. It's a great idea. So <laughs> especially for our careers. That. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> I, I recommend any team that does not have a DJ, get one right away. Um, so yeah, they saw that came back here. We didn't have a DJ like mm -hmm. nobody did. And they had it in the back of their heads. That was cool. That would probably work in this market, but like who would we even get? And then they kind of forgot about that idea. Mm -hmm. And then it was through that, um, a retail gig that I had. I used to DJ at a store called Roots Canada, which was like a yep, very yep. heritage brand in Canada. And um, they had a main, like, what do I call it? Like the equivalent of like, what's the, what's the glitzy, like Rodeo? Yeah, like in Beverly Hills. Yep, Rodeo, yep. It was kind, it's kind of like that or like Park Avenue. It's like kind of that vibe area where they had a massive store that at, after hours they would throw parties. Oh, nice. And I would DJ those parties because I was their guy. I was there in the stores, like at their main store at the, like the Times Square version, Dundas Square, every weekend. And then when they would have these other parties at the, the, the uh, flagship store, I would DJ them. And it was one of those events that was like a wine tasting or something of the sort. And the, the VP of marketing for the company that owns the Raptors was there. Saw me and my partner DJing at the time. And you know what I mean? We were rocking it doing what we do. Mm -hmm. And the thing that she loved the most is that it wasn't just hip hop. It wasn't just anything. It was like, I was, it was matchup style at that time is what yep, we used to yep. call it. Yep. And I was playing everything and I put it all together in a creative way. And she really loved it. And she slipped me the card. And like, we had a really brief conversation about, yeah, we were in Miami and we saw that they had a DJ. We thought that'd be cool here. Would you be interested? And that was the worst thing she could have ever said to me because I, <laughs> Never. I did not stop harassing her until I got that job. <laughs> yeah. Every day you're just at her front door, handing her her newspaper. Can I get you anything? Can I drive you to work? She's like, wow, you know I never mean? should have spoke to you. It would be me. Seriously. I'd like putting my, my jacket down over puddles and shit. I was there. I was always there. So that was 2005. That was, well, this was 2004. Okay. And so it took, it took a few months of like mm -hmm. convincing. And then like the last, last thing was an audition where with, they set up a video camera in the empty arena. They set up some turntables and they said, pretend it's full, do what you would do, go. <laughs> Man, how, and, how, did, how did that go? 
Well, it, apparently it went well because we got the yeah. job. It was me and a partner at the time. I was the DJ. He was the MC. Mm-hmm. And we rocked it for like 10, 15 minutes pretending it was full. We just like in our minds that we had to imagine. Yeah, of course. That it was there. And we did it. And then they took that tape upstairs. I guess it would have been like an actual tape at that time. And I'd love to see that tape. Now that we think about it, I would love to see that tape. I've never even, I never put that on your Instagram once you find it. Right? I've never even seen it. Like even then, they didn't even show me like, this is what you look like, idiots. So we did it. And then we got the call to try it out at the beginning of the next season. So we, Mm -hmm. preseason, they set like a folding table with a little curtain. Of course. In like one of the tunnels where fans walk in and out. And like a low monitor speaker and whatever, and did it. And the rest is history, I guess. That was 05, and I'm still, I'm still there now. How nerve wracking was your first game? Because it's one oh. thing going from being in the club to everybody's there for you or for your music, essentially, it's dark, to going to a, you know, 15 to 20,000 person stadium when it's there for a team and the fans in Toronto are amazing. What, been- how. Is it so out of your realm that you don't even realize how nerve-wracking it is, or were you just extremely nervous? No, I was super nervous. Do we swear on this podcast? 100%. I was shitting my fucking pants. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I had just gotten, remember, this is like five years in. I hadn't really like headlined yeah. gigs at clubs yet, because let me, let me take this back to like a real time. Five years into being a DJ, you're not headlining gen- necessarily no. at clubs. Nowadays, you got a laptop and your friend's a promoter. You can kind of go play the club. It wasn't like that before. And it definitely wasn't like that in Toronto. Toronto's mm-hmm. a very, like the, the roots of the DJ scene here is very competitive. And it was, it's so, it was so bad back then that if you were DJing and not doing a good job, the crowd would let you know. Nice. Like the crowd would turn on you like, boo, <laughs> get this guy off. Like it would be like that. Yeah. So as far as training grounds, that was like, it's like the Marines, dude. Mm-hmm. Like, you know what I mean, it's like heavy, heavy. It's black ops. Like you got to really, really be able to bring it to headlines. So I hadn't even gotten to that point yet. I'd been barely doing some like real gigs and maybe playing some small rooms by myself and stuff like that. Not the major clubs. So like to go from where I was and I just gotten over the the nervousness of putting the record needle on the record because I'm about to go on and it's prime time and everyone's looking at me to the arena. The first I remember the first first game and the first moment they're like, okay, it's you. All I can think of is like, yo, if I mess this up, this is all this is <laughs> not gonna happen. Because remember it was still a trial basis at yeah. that time too. So like I just I I wanted to kill it. And I knew that I was ready, but it was really, really intense. It was a different, different thing. I think maybe it made it a little bit better that I was like in the tunnel kind of off to the side versus like center court. Mm-hmm. It was, yeah, it, was, it wasn't easy. How was, how, what, what, like, when did you start with the Lakers and how did that? Um, well, I was with the uh, Clippers for 12 years prior to getting That's right. the Lakers. So I had, right. I had some sports experience before that and I, you know, so it was a different, um, different vibe. And then with the Lakers, as you saw when you came to visit a couple of seasons ago, I wasn't in a place where the crowd could see me DJing. I am, I am now, or I was before we had to. Okay, sick. They changed the it. season. Yeah, yeah. I'm in the stands now, full time. Amazing. Yeah. So it's a way. It's funny. I mean, as you know, like 
any DJ is going to know if the crowd can see you even where I was before I could see the entire stadium and I can feel the vibe and I got it. Mm -hmm. But being five feet away from the crowd, I get that much more energy, um, which keeps me that much more engaged. And I love, I love everything about it. Yeah. Um, So I'd already had anything goes wrong musically. It's your fault. And everyone, 100%, 100%, it's all my fault. (laughs) And now people know how to read their, they, see my name more and like yeah. you get hit up more online and people yeah. will let you know if they think you're terrible. And sometimes their opinion is most oh. of the time their opinion is wrong, but that's fine. We can um, have, we could talk a whole lot about people's opinions of, of what we should be playing and how we should be doing the job. Well, that's hilarious to me, but that's whatever. Yeah. You, <laughs> we're in a position that everybody can see us do our job. Mm-hmm. Um, so everybody's going to have an opinion on it and music is subjective, right? Like it's, there's no one plus one equals two every time. Like, there's no, there's a hundred right answers to what song to play now, but there is a wrong answer. But just because you don't like answer. that song doesn't mean it's wrong, you know. Yeah. But you know, that's that's a whole other that's neither podcast here. too. Yeah, I want to go to people's. Um, I say this all the time. I want to go to the person who complains about the music, and I want to go to their job and stand <laughs> next to them in their cubicle and just right? question every email they write. Like, oh, really? That's how you're going to word that email <laughs> to your boss right now? Just want to see how that would go. See how that works out. Right. Yeah, I'm gonna write yeah. a movie about that. Exactly. I, I I like to be a real jerk about it sometimes, and I don't I don't tweet people this, but like maybe I should. I don't know. I don't, <laughs> I don't come to your your job and knock the broom out of your hand. <laughs> That's wrong. That's I ra- That's I mean. rarely rarely respond to people. One person, uh, I always find it interesting if they insult the music that you're playing and then request a song. That always like so you're telling me I'm terrible. But then also asking for something at the same time, that's how you think you're going to get what you want is by insulting right. me to begin with. Yeah. It's, right. Well, generally when I respond, I usually respond with like a question such as, well, what would you have done? Exactly. <laughs> and generally they don't have it. Well, why do you play Gangnam Style? That's like the biggest one. It's like, why the hell are you playing this cheesy stuff? And I was like, well, what would you have played? Yeah. And there, there were always something like, oh, I would have played the, the new Gunna or whatever like that. I'm like, okay, cool. So there are... 85-year-olds, there are five-year-olds. Exactly. The new gunner is the best possible choice <laughs> at all times. At all times. Every time out, it's going to work. Crowds right? going to go nuts every time Right? Out. Absolutely, because this is a bottle service nightclub that plays hip-hop. <laughs> that's what this, that's where we are. Exactly. That's the other thing I don't think people realize, too, is that there's so much going on behind the scenes. Like, I could be playing a song that it could have been requested by a sponsor by the owner anything of that nature yeah. at a basketball game so some of that stuff is out of your control and you are trying to please the masses and they're not there for you specifically as the dj they're there for the team so mm-hmm. you're having to try to please as many people as possible and you're never ever going to please every single person in the building no i i chalk it up to honestly like i don't really like to to get down on it or complain about it because like i understand that they don't understand and that's that's and that's okay and that's completely okay and how and how could they understand they've never been how could they possibly no you can't yeah so unless until they listen to this podcast now and then they'll they'll send you (laughs) they'll send you an apology tweet sorry i got mad at you when you played yeah they'll just have more grumbles (laughs) it's fine it's fine we can so how has it changed then from you djing on a folding table to now you have a (laughs) LED DJ booth in the middle of the arena. Yeah. Well, I mean, it was gradual. I've had, I would say if I had to count, I would say I've probably been in five or six positions within the arena Mm -hmm. since I've been there because 
it went from the tunnel to like a semi-permanent spot that was on a landing that was great until they got ratted out for saying, well, that is supposed to be reserved for wheelchair seating. Uh. And by the number, by the, like something about the size of the arena, there has to be a certain amount of wheelchair seats available, whether they're being used or not. So that was no longer okay. Then they had a riser at an end of tunnel. Then I was up in like the, the gondola, like where I saw you, I was up in there mm-hmm. for one season and various, but then finally settled in where I've been for the past few years is like the giant spaceship in the middle of the arena. And that was partially thanks to the uh, game operations who have been pushing for that yeah. for years. And then it was also the year that Drake came on board as the global ambassador that he also was like, well, why the hell are we going to have four corners here if you can't see them? Like, can, can we not do something? That was always my thing, especially now in the DJ world with the Lakers, was talking to them. Like, if you were ever interested in doing this, the crowd, whether they realize it or not, connect with the music more if they can see where it's coming Absolutely. from. Absolutely. 100%. Other, uh, otherwise, like, in a way, like, I don't want to say, well, why have a DJ if you can't see him? Because the value is still there in the selections and, like, the live mixing and all that, for sure. Yeah. But it's amplified a, a millionfold if the DJ is visible. Mm-hmm. And then you can like do throws to the DJ and like involve, be involved. Like it's just way better. You got to be. You got just in the same way that I agree in a nightclub. If there's a difference when the DJ booth is visible and people can interact with the DJ and the DJ can interact with the crowd and feel the energy versus the ones that are like behind the bar somewhere in the corner. Times have changed now. It's just different. Yeah. Like clubs, like the DJ is literally in the middle of the club. Where yeah. when I first started, I was in the hole in the wall. It looked like I was <laughs> yeah. looking through an airplane window, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and nobody nobody cared about the DJ. Right? Yeah. Like times have just changed. That's all. It's not a hey, we're DJs. You must look at us. It's just times no. have changed. I think that also just with the the growth and like the invention essentially, but growth of social media and the way that oh, the yeah. internet moves and YouTube and everything. And, and a lot of other factors musically and whatnot. But I think that people are just more aware of DJ culture and it's, it's looked at as cool now, whereas before it not nece- wasn't necessarily. Um, and for that reason, people want to see the DJ. So yes, absolutely. Where I am now and like where you are now, it's way, way, way better. It's way better. But yeah, it was, it was, it was, it was something that was already in the works and then Drake putting in the word, put it over the top that they're like, okay, cool. Let's really do this. Yeah, it was already some, in place. Some things yeah. just take a little longer than others. Yeah. Like with Irie being the first DJ in the NBA 20 years ago. Right. I, I, I believe every NBA team has a DJ at this point, but it's only been maybe for like the last five years where everybody's had one. So think about how long that took. Right? Exactly. Like things, things just move slow. It's, you know, Exactly. Nothing wrong with it. No. Especially, and especially if you're speaking, I mean, you're in, in LA, I'm in Toronto. So these are big markets, entertainment markets. Totally. So we were earlier to the, the party in that sense, I, I guess, for those reasons. But consider the markets that, you know, it was a much harder sell probably in like Minnesota or mm-hmm. Utah or stuff like that. But it's music and it's like being played by a person who knows music and can react to what's happening on court and yeah. in the stands and whatnot. I don't care what I don't care what arena, what city, what sport even. Having a, a live music curator, especially an experienced DJ, goes a long way. And there's so many different forms of playing music at 
the game. So for you in Toronto, are you doing all of the music? So all the prompts, or do you have somebody behind the scenes that does some of like the offensive defensive prompts? Yeah, no, I don't do the prompts. We have somebody in the control room that does controls the volume of everyone's of the mics and, yeah. and all of that stuff, but also does the, the prompts and the sound effects and stuff like that. And some other things here and there, like when you have something like a video that has sound on tape, that like there are prompts with that song that oh, are yeah. along with the video that'll just be played through there yep. with the sound on tape. But everything else is pretty much me. Are you also doing instrumentals during play too, or no? Nothing during play for you. Nothing during play. Got that's then like I provide loops. Yeah, yeah. And they just run those loops because it's like alternating between that and the defense chants and stuff like that. There's a whole lot going on, and, and I'm preparing yeah. for the next. I'm preparing for the next timeout. Yep. During that time. Yeah, similar to because similar to the Lakers. Are, yeah. Right, like, yeah, because like you know, you know how it is. Like again, yeah, yeah. listeners who are not NBA DJs wouldn't necessarily know that every time out there's scheduled things happening, and most of them are sponsor related. So they go along with a contest or with some kind of hit that is a specific song, or maybe it's our choice, but it's set up for a specific reason. Yep. yep. So we got to prep for that during gameplay, and also we get to watch the game. Yeah. Now, speaking of that, like, did, were you a basketball fan before? Because I've oh, talked to yeah. some DJs that, right, some, it's a feel. There's so much feel. Because when I started, I was doing all the prompts. I was doing all the music all the time. Okay. But I knew basketball, so I kind of had a feel for, okay, here comes a timeout. We're going on a run. We're going to get pumped up a little bit. Were right. you a fan prior to uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. the job? I, yeah. played, I played basketball my whole life. I, I had aspirations like probably every kid that's ever watched Michael Jordan play live. Of course. To be an NBA superstar. So it, I found it like really ironic and very, very pleasing to me to make it to the NBA one way or another. But yeah, basketball, like I was there at the, at the draft when the Raptors drafted Damon Stoudemire in 95. Like, awesome. you know what I mean? Like, I remember that I got, my aunt worked for the city and I got tickets somehow. Me and my friend went, took the bus down and like, it's a big deal. So like basketball and Raptors basketball specifically, have always been a huge thing for me. So to get this opportunity was super, super huge. And yeah, like you said, I know the game. I know the flow of the game. So I know what goes where and when and why instinctually. You know what I mean? Yeah, because you played it growing up. You watched it on TV. Yeah. You already knew it without even knowing that you knew it. Exactly. No. Exactly. So that, that, was, that was really, really fortunate. That And I think that I hope that, I don't even know, but I hope that most NBA DJs all our basketball fans are like, like at least fans of their home team because yeah. like it helps. I would, I would, I would hope so too. And I would assume so at this point, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. Well, I, I, I hope, I say I hope so because I like in Toronto, I was the first professional sports team DJ here. Mm-hmm. And since then other teams like our, our hockey team, our baseball team, our soccer team and whatnot, all have DJs. Not all of these guys are specifically fans of those sports. Mm. They, but it's a great opportunity and they've all totally. seen what it is that I've done. And of course they would, you know I, mean? I remember there was a, we had a rugby team. I don't even know if that team still exists, but we had like some, some league and there was a rugby team and they got a DJ and that, that DJ ended up now becoming the DJ for our football team, the CFL. It's not the NFL, but whatever. yeah. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> you guys but, have a much bigger field. Right. Yes. Yes. And less downs. Um, they he bounced from that to that and like he's not you know what i mean it's different sports mm-hmm. but he has experience as a sports dj so now he was very qualified when that position became available so totally. 
That's why I say I hope. I mean, I would like to think that any DJ that wants a sports team, DJ is a fan of sports in general. But let's be honest, we're, we're, we're the DJ. Yeah, my guess would be, too, that if you're not a fan of that sport, um, that might come through in the music a little bit. And maybe not everybody would. I bet you and I would probably notice that in a way. But I bet right. fans in general, like, really, they wouldn't know fully, maybe subconsciously a little bit. But, yeah, you and I would know for sure. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And I, I don't know. I think, I think, the, I think it, in long term, it would come through the yeah. not be as enjoyable as it could be. Because if, you know... As a DJ, if you're not having fun, you're affecting the level of fun that's possible for everybody in the room. Like, you've been to nightclubs, I'm sure, where the DJ looks like he wants to kill himself. Oh, yeah. And there's not really generally a vibe in the same way that when you walk in and the DJ looks like he's having a great, he or she, I always say he, that's horrible. He or she is having the greatest time of their lives. That energy just, like, that energy exudes and like fills the room. I'm sure you've been in this situation. I've been in this situation. There's 10 people at this event. If I still need to look like I'm having a good time, even if I'm not, because eventually I will win the crowd over. Cause yeah. like, man, like the vibe could be off for what a many number of reasons, not your fault at all whatsoever. But if the 10 people are there like, well, the DJ is into the music that he or she is playing and they're having fun. Like, okay. Like then all of a sudden their mood gets better and they're like, yeah. Hey, this party wasn't raging like we thought it was going to be, but the 10 of us here had a good time, and that's what matters. Dude, and if you can rock a routine and make sure that the people that are there are having a great time, you are very good at your job, sir. You have to be able to please a, pleasing a room full of 1,000 people sometimes is easier than a room full yep. of 10 people. Yeah. Yep, because yep, they're feeding off each other's energy too. 100%. So, so I got to know, I've DJed playoff games. I've DJed game sevens playoffs are that much more exciting than regular season for everybody involved i've never done the nba finals how much different is an nba finals oh dude take the playoffs and multiply it by the the most amount of zeros you can fit on <laughs> crazy it is absolutely nuts but you know what's intense like i've dj'd before last year, the farthest we'd made it was the Eastern Conference Finals. So we, like, mm-hmm. we almost made it to the finals. But we got dealt with at that time. Is yeah. your current guy. <laughs> it happens. Was the killer. Uh, the, the stuff that LeBron did in Cleveland was incredible. Like, 100%. He put the team on his back so many times. But, so yeah, we, we, we tasted it. And that was really, really intense. But it was not it was pale in comparison to the finals, man. Like even this year, getting there, every step was a little bit more intense. But the finals, like that's the big show, dude. That's the big show. And like, it just, everything feels different. Even walking into the arena. Oh yeah. Number one, a lot of things like cosmetically get changed. And the biggest difference, like where my DJ booth is, during the playoffs, each round, there became more and more press there. Mm. So they took up, they covered seats and put tables and had press uh, broadcasting from different countries and whatnot. By the time the finals, it felt like half the arena was press all around me. It was like they blocked off like 20 rows and it was just tables and like super VIP passers be in that area. And like the broad, like um, the TNT crew was like set up 
near me also. So like Shaq and Kenny and Charles Barkley and, and Ernie are right there. Like it was just I, unbelievable, man. Unbelievable. It was like everything we've ever watched on TV right there in real life. And did you do all of the road games? I know game when you guys won the finals, you were out in, mm-hmm. I don't know if you were at the arena, but you were outside Jurassic. somewhere, Jurassic Park, right? Yeah. Well, yeah, that's what we did for every year for, for playoffs. In the arena for home games, obviously it's a game, but outside the arena, whether it's a home game or an away game, we set up a stage that's pretty much permanent for the mm-hmm. whole playoffs. Got it. And there are like sponsor activations and everything around it. And it's, been dubbed the Jurassic Park yeah. due to the Raptors thing. It's really called Maple Leaf Square, but everybody calls it Jurassic Park. And that started off like years ago, just like pretty much kind of like a folding table. And hey, well, we got, you know, we'll got some free t-shirts if you guys want to come while you on the big screen in the arena. And to this phenomenon, it's like, now like the area itself holds 5,000 people. People, but they started to have to set up barricades in sections to all the way down the street because there was too many people to accommodate. Yeah, for safety and, reasons, I'm sure. Yeah, I thought that's why they cap it at five in the, in the main area. But yeah, I did every away game during the playoffs outside and then all the home games inside. So by the time we were in the finals, it felt like the entire city was on the street outside of there. Like you see the 5,000 people in there and then just people and people and people all the way down almost to where like i live not too far from the stadium it was almost all the way down it felt like to my home well you essentially the raptors essentially won an nba championship for an entire country yeah that was the thing that was the thing that being that we're the only canadian nba team again and basketball is a popular sport in canada always has been but the height of its popular, I mean, you know how it is. When, when a team's winning, even the Lakers, like look at the Lakers now compared to maybe two years ago. Oh, yeah. I'm sure there are a lot more diehard Lakers fans now. Even if they've always liked the Lakers, they're showing up now. It's a Lakers town. Yeah. When LeBron showed up, there was more press there than there was during playoff games. Right. Yeah. You know what I mean? So like that, and that wakes people up and that oh. makes people who, well, I think I have a Lakers jersey somewhere. Now they're wearing it all the time and stuff like that. You know what I mean? So that's what happened here, except this is a country that's traditionally more popular for hockey. Mm-hmm. So in a lot of these places that I've never had about, like Vancouver, other than Toronto, Vancouver had the Grizzlies at one point. Yep. But there's been never been NBA basketball anywhere else in this country. And it grew the further we got in the playoffs, especially because it looked like, yo, can they actually win? It grew exponentially. And by the finals, like, like I remember I was telling you about our Jurassic Park, by the finals, they were, I believe the number was 52 versions of Jurassic Park across the country where they had massive viewing parties in all these cities with DJs playing in one in um, Saskatchewan, which is notoriously known as like the biggest sports fan lover city in Canada because they don't have a lot. They only have, like I told you, the CFL, which is like mm-hmm. maybe NFL kind of. It's the Canadian version mm-hmm. of American football. They have a team there, the Saskatchewan Rough Riders. And whether that team wins or loses, they ride so hard that they go to like the Grey Cup, which is our version of the Super Bowl. Mm-hmm. If you go to the Grey Cup weekend, no matter what city is in, whether the, the Rough Riders are playing or not, you see more people in their jersey than anyone else. <laughs> They're just so excited. So during this, I, I can't explain it. It's really, That's really funny. ridiculous. It, it's like, what's the worst 
team in the NFL. <laughs> or not even the worst team. I can't say they're the worst team in the CFL. But like, say, say the Cleveland Browns, for lack of a better... Yeah. I just really hate their uniforms. So say the <laughs> Cleveland Browns. Imagine the finals was the 49ers and the Seahawks, and, you, and the game was in Miami. And everybody there and had there a Browns more, uniform on. <laughs> there are more Browns uniforms than anything else. Like, that's what happens, and it's so strange. But it's the truth. So reason I'm telling you that, these, all of these Jurassic Parks across the country, outside of Toronto, the biggest one was there. They, they opened the football stadium, and it was packed for people watching the Raptors game. That's Everywhere else was level. like... Yeah, everywhere else was like a town, like a, a, a square somewhere in the city or like near their stadiums or wherever they could, wherever it made sense. They opened these a stadium out there, like an outdoor open air football stadium. Like, I wish I could have been out there to experience that. It was so crazy. And they don't like, they don't, they don't have a bat. They've never had a basketball team. Mm-hmm. I didn't even know that they cared about basketball. I know some people, obviously, but not that many. It's like 15,000 people watching in an arena. So, so like cool. that. Yeah, cool it was it was a championship for the entire nation, and then that spilled over to our championship parade, which shut down Toronto with like two and a half million people on the street. People flew in from all over That's to so come crazy. to that parade. It's it like this. This conversation is making me miss sports <laughs> so much more than I already much. did. Like it is, uh, it hurts. It really, really hurts. It's yeah. so like I imagine. I mean, it hurts for me because like. We won the chip, and then we were like making our run for our, our repeat that everybody thought that we were going to yeah, be happy. Yeah, you guys were balling this year. Right? But then you guys, well, last year LeBron came, but like he had the injury and things didn't really go great. This year, pick up AD, and like you're rolling. You're rolling. And I know like people are, you can smell it. You're like, yo, this is going to be our year. I already have and the email out. written out with my ring size for whoever needs me to send it to them. <laughs> Like I, I was, I was ready. I was like, hey, just in case, like, it, yeah, it's one thing. Like when you have a good team, it's not like, you know, there's no guarantee the Lakers would have won the championship this year or still could whatever. But like you, when you know you have a legitimate chance, it makes everything that much Absolutely. more heightened. It's awesome. Absolutely. So I was even just as a basketball fan, like I'm going to sound like real, it's going to be a real sad part of the conversation. <laughs> Even as a basketball fan, I was so looking forward to the playoffs this year. Even if we didn't win, which I fully mm-hmm. believe that we would definitely have a chance to win. Like one hundred percent, we're in the ring. We're in there. But between us, you guys, the Clippers, the Bucks, like even some, like even like Houston started to like mm-hmm. figure it out. Like there's Denver. You got to kind of worry about uh, Dallas. Like Miami, Boston, like this is all these teams. You remember for the past few years before last year, it was like, okay, so Cleveland or Golden State, which one? Correct. Yeah. For like five years in a row. Yeah, totally. It was like pretty much at the beginning of October, we're like, okay, who's going to win it this time? Which one of these two teams? This season was the first time that it felt so completely wide open. And all those teams you mentioned, if had a legitimate chance of winning, like they all, yeah, some more than others, obviously, but like, like yeah, yeah, the playoffs it's like that. Like last year, been amazing. Last year, I think people pretty much hemmed it up that they expected it to be either Milwaukee or Golden State. Totally, you know what I mean. And then when we knocked out Milwaukee, people were like, "Oh, okay, well, Golden State then." And then we won, and it was like, 
you know, a surprise, which was a pleasant surprise. Even if I wasn't the Toronto Raptors DJ, even if I wasn't from Toronto. Yeah, still It would have been a pleasant surprise because it was an entertaining playoffs. It was a great final. And the underdog mm-hmm. won, even though we had home court advantage, so we weren't the underdog. <laughs> <laughs> you're in a whole other <laughs> country it, that nobody here cares about, so you're 100% right, the underdog. Right. Trust me. You know what I mean? As far as the media is <laughs> concerned, they all totally. roll us out. Like, that's a whole other thing. But, but like, it was refreshing. It's, I'm, I'm a sports fan. You know what I mean? Like, we all want our team to win all the time, especially when we are directly invested and involved in part of these teams. But, like, you want to see a surprise. You want to not know. I don't want to know what's going to happen before it happens. Do you know what I mean? So this year really felt like the most exciting. It could have been the most exciting playoffs in, like, the past decade. For sure. Really. Absolutely. And, and it got short, cut short, and that really makes me sad. I hope that things carry on in that way next season in that like there's a, a fair amount of elite teams so that we can be excited and not know going in and be like be surprised by who ends up winning the championship i really uh, really hope well when that happens we will uh do this podcast again and talk about that yeah. and we'll we'll cut back to this and then go back to the future <laughs> yeah oh man right. it's, hopefully at that time i'll have a little bit more hardware love that you're wearing your ring right now i would i would never take mine off it's, it's awesome i i've worn it now since quarantine i've worn it a lot more than i used to. yeah <laughs> i wore it out like i've worn i usually like i'd wear it to a game here or there i'd wear it like to an event or whatever but it's not honestly it's really inconvenient it's not the yeah, kind it's of it's not a daily thing. use ring obviously no it's yeah. so like clunky it kind of like even though it's my size it's so heavy that it still kind of falls off most of the time like it's it's not the most um i don't know space effective use of my (laughs) finger especially if you're djing right like the weight distribution it's so hard to to dj with it just the fact that like it it, like it always ends up going like this like sideways yeah and and then like i'm trying to do cuts and my hands heavier than it normally is (laughs) these are the first worldest problems i've ever of course yeah oh man my nba championship ring is too heavy rough life (laughs) but but really really it's one of the greatest things i've ever of course acquired in my life and I wouldn't change a thing, but um, yeah, no, I don't wear it all the time, but I wear yeah. it a lot at home. Of course. <laughs> I, I, I would uh, wear it as a, just a subtle flex every once in a while for certain friends of mine that I would know that I would just have to show it to them constantly. You know what I mean? Like non Raptors fans, especially <laughs> heavy doubters, especially exactly. like, Yo, what, uh, what time, what time is, Oh, Oh, I'm not even wearing a watch. Oh, my bad. <laughs> Hope you're enjoying the conversation I'm having with Four Corners so far. This is the end of part one. Part two is already available. We talk about Drake. We talk about artists submitting music. We actually hear Four Corners' new single he just released under his artist name, 401 West. So check that out. Links on the bios. Thank you for listening. Till next time.